The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. It's uh, my privilege to introduce our morning devotion speaker. Uh, Jesse Prochelle is currently the senior pastor of Providence OPC, which is located in Temecula, uh, California. Prior to that, he was uh, pastoring in Tennessee, and prior to that, pastoring in California. Jesse and his wife Lenny have four children. I think the oldest is now in college. You have two older in college already. You don't, you don't, you don't look old enough to be, have kids in college, but we're glad you're here. Prior to that, prior to ministering at Providence OPC, he was also a, a pastor in the Calvary Chapel, a missionary to Slovakia, and he received his MDiv at RTS Orlando, but we're delighted to have you here. Please bring God's word to us, Jesse. Well, good morning. Uh, it's a great privilege uh, to be here and I uh, appreciate the invitation. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy, uh, chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slaves, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, and as with the buyer, so with the seller, and as with the lender, so with the borrower, and as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers, and the highest people on the earth languish. The earth is, lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. And therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. And therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, and the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it, and the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine, and all joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. And then briefly in chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast, uh, a rich food full of marrow, of wine, uh, aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We do ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, have you ever noticed it's very hard uh, to think about joy, uh, rejoicing, festivity, uh, without also thinking about food? 
they kind of go hand in hand, and it's not just because you're an overindulgent, gluttonous American, which may also be the case, but uh, it's just the way it is. I mean, why, my wife is Hispanic, and the idea of having any sort of family celebration that doesn't first center on food and drink uh, is unthinkable. It's just uh, the way things are. If joy, then food. Uh, and the Bible seems completely at home with this reality, this reality of feasting, whether it begins uh, in the garden uh, full uh, of, of goodness, this land full of delight, whether it you know, transitions into this other land flowing with milk and honey, or these promises of a future time as we read in Isaiah. I mean, even in the, the Messiah's ministry, you know, his first public sign is making uh, what seems to be an imprudent amount of wine for an already uh, well-nourished, uh, shall we say, a group of, uh, of wedding-goers. And the Bible ends with the Feast of All Feasts. Uh, the Bible is very at home uh, with the idea of joy and food going hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh, and as Christians, I think we all believe that one of the grand benefits of our redemption is eternal life. But we aren't always sure what to make of the living portion of eternal life. Uh, you'll get this at some point in your pastoral ministry where people will come to you and talk about their fears of living forever. <laughs> uh, and a lot of that has to do with what life has looked like here for them uh, and just the idea of kind of this monotony or endlessness uh, of living. But what is it like? I mean, what is eternal life like? How are we to think about it? How does the Bible teach us to frame what we're to uh, imagine about the kingdom that is coming, the new creation. You know, for many of us, depending on how you were raised, you get into these kind of ethereal, you know, wispy visions uh, of what is coming. And yet the Bible puts it very uh, much in the terra firma of this world, and especially it frames it with the idea of feasting or rejoicing. Uh, and this morning's scripture in Isaiah wants to tell us about life after death, about the benefits of resurrection, and to tell us about the joys of heaven. And it's no surprise then, when it does tell us about the joys of heaven, it talks about food. I mean, that is its main component, at least in this particular text. So Isaiah, in chapter 24 and 25, I want us to see briefly this morning, as he teaches us about the joys of our salvation, teaches us to think about it according to three feasts. And so the first one I want us to see is a feast set for the curse. In the portion of Isaiah 24 that we read, you'll notice it begins, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, in verse 1. And then in verse 6, it tells us how he will do this. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. Uh, the Lord is coming in this text to judge a guilty world. And the way that he's going to do it is uh, the picture given as the curse coming, mouth wide open, devouring all the inhabitants of the world. Uh, and you'll notice a few things about the curse and how it, uh, how it eats. <laughs> you'll notice curse first is not a picky eater. If you see in verses 2 and following, no one is left out, regardless of their station or rank, their gender, uh, male, female, priest, uh, uh, slave, or master. It does not matter. Everyone is consumed as the curse comes eating. Uh, it's not as we often imagine culturally, there are good guys and bad guys, white hats and black hats, and the curse, you know, swerves around a few people. Uh, the curse partakes of everyone, no matter what side of the aisle they're on or how many good deeds or, or bad deeds they've done. And the other thing that we see is not only is curse not a picky eater, the, the curse is never full. 
It never says enough. It's never satiated, you know. The curse never pushes back from the table and says, you know, no moss, I've had enough. Uh, you know, death never says enough, we, we learn in Proverbs. And why? According to verse 5 of chapter 24, because the whole world and its inhabitants have transgressed the laws of God, violated his statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. All the inhabitants of the earth are guilty. And because of their guilt, you'll notice the poor earth lies defiled because of those who live upon it, not the other way around. The earth is suffering because of what these people have done. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All has broken God's covenant in Adam. And because of all this guilt that we share in solidarity, God will judge and the curse will sit down for a feast. Well, that's language I think we all know. I think what's helpful about the scriptures in general is it doesn't just leave us with, you know, words that have become churchy words. You know, for us, curse is a churchy word. Originally, it didn't have that same connotation. But what is the curse? What does that mean? You know, the text tells us. It puts the curse in street clothes in the text. Notice, the curse is when the wine mourns and the vine languishes and the merry-hearted sigh and the mirth is stilled and the tambourines are silenced. Uh, no more do they drink wine and sing. You know, what is the curse? The curse is anything that robs our joy. You know, the curse, notice, comes in, uh, silences the music, snatches the wine, and makes sure everyone's laughter ceases. That is what the Bible wants us to think about when we think about the effects of the fall. What does the fall do? It robs humanity of all the things that make life good. At least it robs them of the ways that they can enjoy it rightly. And the final bite, as curse nibbles at our life, robbing our joy bit by bit. I mean, think about that. What kind of things rob you of joy presently? You know, those are the results of the fall and the curse nibbling away at what makes life worth living. And the final bite that the curse will take, according to the text, is death. And all of us will succumb, you know, to that final mouthful, if you will. So the first thing we see is a feast set for the curse. And the second, you'll notice, is a feast set for all the people. Uh, as the prophets are wont to do, you know, Isaiah makes a hard 180 uh, out of nowhere, it seems like. Uh, he goes from the curse devouring all the inhabitants of the earth to this feast that is set for all the peoples. You know, it seems to be exactly opposite of what he just said was going to happen. But notice we go from this famine in chapter 24 to a feast in chapter 25. And what's the appropriate, what do you do if the cupboards have been bare? You know, if you've been, as seminarians, this might be you now, uh, stuck on a uh, diet of Top Ramen, which is my, my, my latest college child's uh, new favorite request is, if you could just send me a box of Top Ramen. Um, apparently hot water is the only thing that is not in short supply that is free. Um, but what do you do when the cupboards were bare and now all of a sudden they're full? Or when things had undergone, you know, famine and now the harvest is coming, the only appropriate response, appropriate response, the right thing to do is to throw a party. Right? It's to have a feast, according to the text. God, when God wants to talk about the kind of joy that he brings, that he's promising the world, notice the language that he uses. First, he sets a table. And once he has set the table, he puts two things on it, an abundance of food and the best. The abundant and the best. You can see this in John 2 as well, but no time for that. Uh, 
But he puts the, an abundance of food and the best of food on the table. Do you see it in the text? He says, where there was no wine, where the, where the vine was languishing, now there is well-aged wine. I mean, think about that. That's a very strange way to phrase it in particular. Uh, it, it's giving us two, two, two connotations in that usage. One, there's so much wine that there's no need to tap into the new vintage. You can let it rest a while. Let the tannin soften because we have so much that we can go into the cellar for the well-aged wine because we have so much. But by the time we make use of this, the new vintage will be aged as well, you know, in the days to come. That there's this well-aged wine that they're, that they're to be pursuing uh, and to enjoy. But also fat things, notice, full of marrow. There'll be no diets in that day, uh, saying skip the fat. Depends what week it is. Fat's good for you this week. Um, these are rich foods. Uh, and you'll notice in the scripture, fat is an image attached to human life that's full. That, that, you know, the, the new code word of the day is flourishing, right? Uh, the human life that is really abundant is fat. You know, I don't know what kind of household you grew up in. I grew up in a, a Christian home that was somewhat evangelical mixed with a little fundamentalism. Um, but I do remember in our library, which was limited and frightening, uh, there was a book that always caught my attention. And the title of it was, uh, Help Lord, The Devil Wants Me Fat. Does anyone remember this book? Am I the only one that knows? Uh, but scripturally speaking, the devil does want us fat. Uh, it's not the devil that wants us fat. It's that God who wants us fat. In biblical language, I do have a theory that we'll all be uh, obese, but not in the way that our culture in heaven. Uh, fat in the scripture connotes fullness, right? It, it, it means that you have enough and more than enough. And, that, and that's a good thing. I mean, no matter what our culture says negatively about fat, we still understand this at some level. You know, no one in their right mind anyway gets excited about celery, for instance. Um, and if you're going to eat celery, you put fat on it, right? You either put peanut butter in it or you dip it in ranch dressing because why in the world would you eat it otherwise? You know? uh, no one wants a skinny Santa Claus. We all realize at, at a base level, joy and fat go hand in hand. And the scripture gives us that picture. I mean, the opposite of that is the, you know, the dryness, the kind of icy and rattling skinny bones of death. You know, as you minister uh, in days to come, you will be at the sick bed that eventually gives way to the deathbed. And one of the hardest things pastorally to see is big, strong men who slowly become very thin, papery, their, their, their skin becomes very delicate, and they just waste away. Death and skinniness go hand in hand. And so in this text, the Lord has sat us down at a table where all of the animals are fattened up in order that we might be fattened up. The, the, the well-aged wine is pouring liberally, uh, and our mouths are in, wide open, imbibing the best of all without limits. And God is supplying all that we need. And the question then becomes, what causes this celebration? How do we move from you know, a feast that is set for the curse where the whole world is consumed as the curse comes uh, uh, to eat uh, uh, its, its feast to now all the nations sitting at this table where God is supplying for them in this liberal manner. Well, the question is answered in that third and final feast. You'll notice there's a feast set in chapter 25 for God himself. In verse 7, 
It says he will swallow up, notice swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over the peoples. There's first this feast of sorrow where God swallows. He swallows up this veil, this covering that's over the nations. And you could think of it like, like a mourner's veil. And you get that from the text itself. You'll notice once the veil is removed, what else is removed? Tears are wiped away from everyone's eyes. Shame and reproach are removed. Once he removes the veil, then he also removes our, our, our sadness and our shame, that that goes hand in hand. Notice the curse has cast this long shadow that falls on every part of our life that causes tears. It, it causes shame. It causes heartache, disease and lack, you know, turmoil, broken relationships, uh, sin that that clings to us, and even as we despise it, it is not easily remedied uh, or wiped away. You know, think of the harm that you've done uh, or the harm that's been done to you and the shame that results from both of those things that, again, doesn't wash off overnight and even in our redemption does not easily dissipate. You know, all these sorts of loss that we've experienced is this result of the curse's long shadow that has been covering us, and God comes in this text, and he swallows up that covering. And then you'll notice in verse 8, he feasts on death. He swallows up death forever. First sorrow and then death. Up to this point in human history, you know, death has been running all over us, you know, spiking the ball in the end zone and dancing. Uh, the score is not close when it comes to us and death. It's been a rout, uh, and we are not winning. And then God sits down for this meal. And he serves himself a heaping plateful of death. And again, consider how does death taste. Think of your own life. And then think of those that you've loved. Think of cancer and people whose children die far before the time that they should. Or those who have lost parents at the most important times of their adolescence. Death leaves a mark. And here God is serving himself death as a meal. Clearly, as we read this text, the question becomes, what is Isaiah looking toward? And it's obvious, you know. God sitting down and eating the curse and eating death. What do those things taste like? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, our own maker partaking of these things. Christ drinking that wine cup of God's wrath to its bitter dregs all so that we might be able to be sat at this table and feast with all peoples where God gives to us liberty, liberally. Of course, he eats of death and reproach and those sorts of things on the cross, but also he devours death and resurrection. You know, we get to this feast in chapter 24 and 25 because of Good Friday. Because Christ our Lord ate death and ate curse on our behalf. But we also get to that great feast because of Easter. For in order for the curse to be removed, God's wrath not only had to be born, but death had to be overcome. It had to be conquered. And Jesus did indeed come forth from the grave, tasting death in order that he might do so, uh, that, that he might taste death for everyone. So when does this party start? I mean... We hear the good news that God has taken this meal for us, but when does our celebration begin? I think, you know, you've been, you've been at school long enough to know when it fully begins. Uh, Paul quotes.
quotes this text in, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The great feast starts fully at the end of history, at our final resurrection, when we put on new bodies, entering into the new creation, enjoy the good gifts that God gives us as his people. But because of that resurrection, that death and resurrection of our Lord, while it does not come to us fully until the last day, what I want to impart today, most of all, is that there is something for us to do presently because of these realities. That if our embodied experience as Christians in the new creation is one of joy, you know, as Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And yet somehow we, we often as Christians, and especially at times in our own tradition, act as if that's all just going to have to wait for then. <laughs> you know, if you want that good stuff, uh, if there's any kind of enjoyment, that's going to come only after the resurrection. For now, you know, it's all and only suffering. And is it true? There is suffering. Our problems still do exist. This age really is still a life in the cruciform fashion. There's no doubt about that. As Calvin says, life is in one sense a constant death. And curse really is still opening its mouth wide, you know, to nibble away at all the good that is in our life. But the reality is we know the end of the story. And because Christ has died in our stead, because he is risen presently and seated and throned, because the first man has gone before us, we know the end of the story, which scripturally speaking gives us the right to begin to enjoy the gifts God has given presently. Not only is joy the serious business of heaven, it is part of what we are commanded to partake of now. We are the only people who have a festal event worthy to really uh, uh, produce God-given whole joy, you know, to really celebrate, to really have something where you need a big event. You know, Festivus for the rest of us won't do. You need something bigger than kind of the made-up festivals that we do to try to, you know, uh, somehow eke out a little bit of happiness in, in our lives. You need something grounding, something big, something large enough that no matter what's going on, you can uh, embrace and say, this is worth living for. And in the gospel, as Christians, we have been given that event. Uh, and therefore, it is incumbent upon us to live in such a way uh, that the world might see we actually believe that that event is true and has real ramifications on our day-to-day -day life. Yes, we suffer. But notice, scripturally speaking, what happens when we suffer? Count it all joy, my brothers when you encounter various trials. You know, even in our suffering, we have this eternal and abundant hope because we know the end of the story and we know what was due to us rightly that has now been removed because of what our God has eaten on our behalf and what he has then given us freely uh, out of his own goodness. Death swallows us all, but our God has swallowed death in order that all who trust in him might live forevermore. And our forever is the joy of a feast. A feast without calorie counts, a feast without health restrictions, a feast without addictions. You know, a feast where you don't have to get up early to go to work the next day. And no one gets assigned kitchen cleanup, you know, when it's over. We have the joy of resurrection. And Christ is indeed risen. And therefore, let us live lives 
that actually reflect that we believe that no matter how bad things are, nothing's really all that bad. I mean, there's nothing wrong with us that a good resurrection can't fix, right? I mean, and as we do, we will then tempt others to taste and see that the Lord is good. There has to be something tempting about our faith, and God has given us uh, something sufficient to bring about those realities. So I'd encourage you as you study, as you, you know, go about your business seeking to minister on God's behalf, uh, in one sense, to just relax. It's over. The hard work is done. <laughs> Christ has already won on your behalf. And therefore, we have the right to rejoice, even when the ministry is going poorly, even when, you know, your own life looks a shambles. It is why Christ came. And therefore, may we put our confidence in him, and may the joy that flows from that be reflective in our own existence. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that the good news is good indeed. Uh, Lord, forgive us for often making it uh, seem like it's not. Uh, we are indeed uh, a frail people, Lord, fallible and falling, and even more than that, oftentimes willfully rebellious. And yet you still love us, Lord, and you have sought us and found us and done all that's necessary to make us your own. And Lord God, we pray that that would settle deep within us and that we might live lives that are free. Lord, free to love and serve you, to love and serve others, and Lord, to enjoy it as we do. Uh, may we do so uh, for our own good, but most importantly, for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.